Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers. It's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Alex Ritson, and in the early hours of Friday the 1st of March, these are our main stories. Palestinian officials accused Israel of killing more than 100 people as a food aid convoy approached Gaza City to feed the starving. I am one of the wounded. I was on Rashid Street. We were there all day in order to get food for our children. They said we brought aid, but we paid for that aid with our blood. Israel confirms it did open fire, but says truck drivers ploughed into the crowd, causing many deaths. President Biden and Donald Trump head to the US-Mexico border to address the surge in immigration ahead of this year's presidential election. And a leading opposition politician in Chad is killed during an exchange of gunfire with the security forces. Also in this podcast, a four-year ban for legendary French footballer Paul Pogba after failing drugs tests and... What we've achieved for multinational companies, we should now do for very wealthy individuals. We should agree on a common minimum tax for the ultra-rich. The G20 group of the world's most powerful nations hears why there should be a special tax for billionaires. There is confusion about what happened to cause dozens of people to lose their lives as they waited for food aid in Gaza. There are conflicting accounts, but everyone agrees something terrible happened. Palestinian officials have accused Israeli forces of killing more than 100 people and wounding many more. The Israeli army acknowledged that soldiers did open fire, but said most of those killed were either trampled in the chaos or run over by the aid trucks. As our special correspondent Fergal Keane reports from Jerusalem, Thursday's events are a stark reminder of the sheer scale of hunger in Gaza. The UN has been warning of famine in Gaza for several days. Um, Shipments into northern Gaza have been suspended by the United Nations. That's because they say there simply isn't a security environment that would enable them to move food safely. We've had reports over the last week or so of trucks being looted, criminal gangs attacking truck drivers, and the UN has criticised Israel for not, as they say, creating an enabling environment. Now, that was going to change. The presence of Israeli troops near that incident in the early hours of the morning may well be an indication that they were there to ensure some kind of security. Well, whatever happened, in the end, you had a reported 104 people killed. And it may not be a question of conflicting accounts. It may be that both things happened. People were knocked over and were trampled by trucks and people were also shot by the Israel Defence Forces. But I think 
you know, when you see the kind of scenes which are emerging from there, you hear people saying we're eating animal feed, we've even run out of that. And pictures I've just seen coming from a hospital in northern Gaza of emaciated children. I think that gives you a sense of what it is that sends people out in the middle of the night into such a dangerous place. Two women cradle a man, a loved one who has been killed. He's wrapped in a white shroud, only his face is open to the world. It's the face of a young man on a morning when the hunger created by war led to tragedy. That is the fundamental fact of what happened today. The dead and wounded were starving people who'd gone to Al Rashid Street simply hoping to feed their families. I am one of the wounded. I was on Al Rashid Street. We were there all day in order to get food for our children. They are liars. They said we brought aid, but we paid for that aid with our blood. Thousands had gathered in the pre-dawn darkness. They sat around fires, listening for the sound of the approaching trucks that would bring them flour, canned goods, the means of survival. There were farmers, mechanics, teachers, those who'd lost their homes, those who still clung on, like this doctor from Al-Shifa Hospital. I'm here just like any other person in Gaza and the north. All the men from Gaza and the north are here now to get flour, and I'm not ashamed to say it. We have reached the point of starvation. An Israeli drone filmed people crowding the aid trucks. It's a striking depiction of human desperation. People can be seen running. A man crawls away as if he's seeking cover. Israel says most of the dead were trampled or run over, but that troops opened fire when a crowd posed a threat to soldiers. It isn't yet possible to clarify how many of the dead were shot, how many crushed. This eyewitness was shot and run over. After they stopped shooting, we went back to get our aid. By the time I got flour and some canned goods and took it down from the truck, they shot at us. They shot me and the truck driver left and ran over my leg. This incident comes on a day when Gaza marks a reported 30,000 deaths since the war began. Go to the intensive care units in the hospitals of the north and there are babies with signs of severe malnutrition. Doctors at Kamal Adwan Hospital say malnutrition has claimed the lives of eight children. Rabah Hamouda was cradling her emaciated nephew, Ahmad. This child is suffering from severe dehydration due to lack of milk. His mom breastfeeds him, but she hasn't eaten, and there is no artificial milk. He was rescued from the rubble when he was one month old. He lost 24 members of his family. That report by Fergal Keane. Well, at the time of recording this edition of the Global News Podcast, the UN Security Council was holding a meeting to discuss Thursday's events in northern Gaza, which the White House described as tremendously alarming and of deep concern. Here's the US State Department spokesman Matthew Miller. Far too many innocent Palestinians have been killed, not just today, but over the past nearly five months. And when you think about today's tragedy, it is especially heartbreaking to consider how many of those families affected will be burying loved ones, not for the first time. We are urgently seeking additional information on exactly what took place. We have been in touch with the Israeli government since early this morning and understand that an investigation is underway. We will be monitoring that investigation closely and pressing for answers. U.S. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller. In an interview with the BBC, the IDF spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, said very few casualties were at the hands of Israeli gunfire. 
less than 10, a handful of people is the number we've identified so far. Of course, we are continuing our review and investigation of this incident as it develops, and we are getting more information by the hour. We are continuing to secure humanitarian access to make sure that food supplies continue to flow into Gaza. And this is an ongoing operation that goes hand in hand with our offensive against Hamas uh, in order to remove Hamas from the control of the Gaza Strip and bring on our hostages. IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. The two men most likely to slug it out for the White House in November headed to Texas on Thursday. Their aim? To put their stamp on one of the key issues in what's shaping up to be the nastiest presidential election ever. President Joe Biden flew to the port of Brownsville on the Gulf of Mexico. 400 kilometres away, the man he's almost certain to face, Donald Trump, made for the small town of Eagle Pass. Mr Trump left little doubt about who he blamed for what he called the crisis of immigration. Something's going on that's bad now. The United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. It's migrant crime. We call it Biden migrant crime, but that's a little bit long. For his part, President Biden condemned the logjam blocking bipartisan action on tackling the matter in Congress and challenged Donald Trump to join him. Here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? Our correspondent Tom Bateman is in Eagle Pass and told me more about what both men had to say. You know, and you heard them in the clips there, these sort of extremely contrasting visions of what the two men are projecting here. We have Mr. Trump talking very much in terms of the language of war and invasion. He talks about warriors and fighting age men um, without evidence uh, making their way across this border. Um, Mr. Biden talking about um, the need for compromise, he's saying, on the part of the Republicans holding up his uh, package of measures to secure the border in Congress. But that implicitly is to sort of blame Republicans for basically blocking what he is proposing to do. But the realities remain here, despite what everyone is saying, that the US has had this record numbers of people coming across its southern border due to you know, a variety of factors, but there has been the largest global movement of people due to um, conflict and instability, the effects of climate change in recent years since the Second World War. And since the pandemic, we've seen the numbers spring right back, trying to get to the wealthier world and in particular um, to the United States where there is a growing jobs gap since the pandemic and an ageing population. They need a workforce. That has created another pull factor. So we've seen those record numbers. Republicans blame Mr Biden, they say, for not securing the border, driving it up even further. But what everyone agrees on is that the system for processing asylum and immigration applications in the US is broken. Nobody denies that. This is about how to fix it and get to get the political agreement to try and do that. They picked very different places to make their stands, though, didn't they? Absolutely. Eagle Pass, where I am in Texas, and behind me is uh, Shelby Park, as it's called, a public space by the Rio Grande, by the river. Um, But it's been filled with 
Republican state controlled. So the, the, the Republican governor of Texas uh, controls these National Guard troops. And I'm looking at Humvees and soldiers where Donald Trump is at the moment saying they're deterring migrants from coming across. Uh, Mr. Biden has been to Brownsville, Texas, where a much bigger town where there's been a drop in the numbers, they say, because of coordinated action with non-governmental groups and the federal border patrol. So two different towns, two competing visions, but it is certain that this issue is one that will dominate this election campaign. Tom Bateman on the US-Mexico border. Ukraine's military says it shot down 13 Russian warplanes in as many days, a big increase over recent months. The assertion comes amid warnings that Ukrainian forces are running dangerously low on ammunition and reports of further Russian advances on the battlefield. I asked BBC Monitoring's Russia editor Vitaly Shevchenko if the Ukrainian claims were credible. The commander of the Ukrainian Air Force posted a picture of what he said was a Russian jet that was shot down. And frankly, it looks like a bit of a blob against a wide background. And Ukraine has very good reasons to be desperate for a feel-good story because Russian forces have been gaining ground Ukrainian forces are experiencing a very serious shortage of ammunition because of delays in Western supplies. So, in short, we haven't seen any solid evidence to confirm all this. So, Vitaly, if this claim is accurate, how how do you explain Ukraine's newfound success? We don't exactly know how Ukrainians are doing it. It's reasonable to assume that they could be using American-supplied Patriot missiles or NASAMs. And one way in which they could be doing it is by bringing those systems closer to the front line. And also there's the possibility that Russia quite simply is running out of experienced pilots. The truth, though, is that we don't really know exactly why this is happening. But this development is not likely to tip the balance on the battlefield in Ukraine's favour. A lot depends on those ammunition supplies, whether Ukraine gets them anytime soon. Because if it doesn't, and I've been speaking to uh, various um, members of the Ukrainian military in the trenches, they say they literally have to fight with their hands tied. Intelligence gives them Russian targets, but they have to pick and choose which they can afford to target. And Russia it appears, has all the ammunition it needs. Vitaly Shevchenko. Should there be a global minimum tax on the world's estimated 3,000 billionaires? That's an issue that's being seriously considered by the G20 group of the world's most powerful countries. Finance ministers have been meeting in the Brazilian city of Sao Paulo and on Thursday they were given an address by Gabriel Zuckman. He's the founding director of the EU Tax Observatory and associate professor of public policy and economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Julian Marshall asked him why he thought it was a good idea. The very rich billionaires have much lower effective tax rates than the rest of the population. They pay much less tax relative to their ability to pay than the working class, the middle class, the upper middle class. 
And the best way to address that problem is through international cooperation, because there's always a risk, you know, when one country tries alone to tax the wealthy, there's always a risk that they might move to some low-tax country. That's why international cooperation is ideal to fix that issue. And we now know that international agreements on a minimum tax are possible because in 2021, 140 countries agreed on a minimum tax rate for multinational companies of 15%. And so what I said at the G20 finance ministers meeting is that what we've achieved for multinational companies, we should now do for very wealthy individuals. We should agree on a common minimum tax for the ultra-rich. Why is it that billionaires, as you say, pay less tax than anyone else relative to their income? Because when you're very rich, it's easy to structure your wealth such that this wealth is going to generate very little or sometimes no taxable income. And we saw that, for instance, in the U.S. a few years ago when there were revelations by the U.S. media ProPublica on the taxes paid by people like uh, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. And you see that in some years they pay literally zero income tax or just negligible amounts. That's really the problem. And the simplest way to address that problem is to say that there should be a minimum amount of tax owed where the minimum is computed as a fraction of of wealth because wealth is well defined for billionaires the notion of income on the other hand is not very well defined it's very easy for billionaires to manipulate their income this is a, a meeting of the G20 but that still leaves a lot of countries outside the grouping where billionaires could move. Look, it's utopian to believe that there will be an agreement with absolutely all the world's countries. But we don't need global consensus to make progress on these issues. What we need is just a critical mass of countries saying, look, there should be a floor to how low the taxes of billionaires can go. Gabriel Zuckman speaking to Julian Marshall. People in France had the chance to buy the world's only four-yearly newspaper on Thursday. La Bougie du Sapeur, or the Sapper's Candle, is a satirical tabloid that only ever comes out on the 29th of February. Our correspondent in Paris, Hugh Schofield, has got himself a copy. It's been running for 44 years, and this is edition... Number 12. La Bougie du Sapeur is a 20-page tabloid that was conceived as a bit of fun by a group of friends and somehow keeps making enough money with each issue to survive until the next, February the 29th. The paper has sections on politics, international affairs, sport and celebrity gossip, but its tone is irreverent, light-hearted and, in theory anyway, humorous. The lead story this leap year is on how exams and academic attainment are being made redundant by artificial intelligence. The second lead, which would certainly not pass the censors in the UK, is a jokey article by a woman warning men about the drawbacks of becoming women. Politically correct, it ain't. Elsewhere, there's a call for a Winston Churchill Award for the first person to be eliminated from the Paris Olympics. This on the basis, the paper says, that Churchill hated sport. And a serialised detective story, The Drowning in the Pool, whose next instalment will come in 2028. Hugh Schofield. Still to come in the Global News Podcast. (laughs) 
The mystery surrounding who wrote this 80s style song. A prominent opposition politician in Chad has been killed during a shootout involving the security forces on Wednesday. Authorities say Yaya Dillo was killed along with a dozen other people. The violence comes just a few days after the announcement of elections that might have restored democratic rule to the Central African country after three years under a transitional military regime. The BBC's Maini Jones is in neighbouring Nigeria. Mobile phone and internet networks are still mostly down in Chad, so it's taken hours for the rumours to be confirmed. But the authorities have now announced that Yaya Dilo is dead. Mr Dilo was widely predicted to be the main opponent of current head of state Mohamed Debi in May's elections. But just 24 hours after the polls were announced, the transitional government accused Mr Dillo's Socialist Party of Our Borders of carrying out a deadly attack on the internal security offices. The communication minister told AFP that following the attack, Mr Dillo retreated to his party headquarters, where he allegedly refused to surrender, opening fire on the security forces. Chad is one of several African countries currently under military rule. Mohamed Debi came into power after his father, long-term ruler Idris Debi, was killed in battle in 2021. Myini Jones. Paul Pogba was the star of the 2018 Football World Cup, winning the trophy with France. He's also played for Manchester United and currently is with the Juventus squad in Italy. But now, the 30-year-old's playing career is in doubt. He's been banned from football for four years by Italy's National Anti-Doping Tribunal after failing two blood tests. I learned more from our sports correspondent, Katie Gornall. If we rewind back to the first day of the Italian football season, he was selected for a random drugs test and elevated levels of testosterone were found in his system. So he was provisionally suspended by Italy's National Anti-Doping Tribunal in September. And it's been reported that he tested positive for something called DHEA, and that's a banned substance that boosts testosterone naturally occurring in the body. It's an anabolic steroid, essentially. And a four-year ban is the standard length under the World Anti-Doping Code. So that is what Paul Pogba has been given. It's backdated, so he won't be able to play again until August 2027, although Pogba has said he'll take his case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Uh, Yeah, tell me more about his response. He released a statement. He said that he believes the verdict is incorrect. He goes on to say that he is sad, shocked and heartbroken that everything he's built in his professional playing career has been taken away from him. He says he's never knowingly or deliberately doped and adds that when he is free of legal restrictions, the full story will become clear. Now, a four-year anti-doping ban can be reduced in cases where an athlete can prove it was not intentional or was the result of contamination. So we don't yet know if this is the final length of his ban because he does intend to appeal. Because he really was one of the greatest players of his generation, wasn't he? He really was. He was a standout player from a very young age, as you say, among the best of his generation. So 
he played more than 90 times for France. He was a key part of their World Cup winning squad in 2018. And when he was a youngster at Manchester United, they were raving about him. They saw him as, as the future of their midfield. They were devastated when he moved to Juventus back in 2012. And it was there that he really thrived. He won the Serie A title in four successive seasons. It convinced Manchester United to bring him back to the club in 2016 and make him the world's most expensive footballer in the process. But that move failed to deliver in the way that both the player and the club wanted it to. He didn't hit the same heights as he did for Juventus and eventually he returned to Juventus back in 2022 and he had been plagued by injuries ever since really. He missed the Qatar World Cup through injuries so his career was at a low point but then obviously these further problems have surfaced with this positive drugs test and his career really is in shreds right now. It's difficult to see how his career could recover from a lengthy back. Katie Gornall. A journalists group in Afghanistan says the Taliban rulers have warned that if female journalists do not cover their faces on television, women's participation in the media could be banned altogether. But a Taliban official has denied issuing any explicit warning on banning women's participation in television. With more details, here's Anbarasan Etirajan. The Afghan Journalist Centre said the Taliban Ministry of Propagation of Virtue and Prevention of Vice wanted female employees to wear a black covering with only their eyes visible. It said the message was conveyed to media firms during a meeting in Kabul. There has been no response from Taliban officials. Since seizing power two and a half years ago, the Taliban have imposed numerous restrictions on women, including gender-based segregation in workplaces and banning them from taking part in phone-in radio programs. Last week, the Taliban authorities in Khost's province warned that some private radio stations were promoting moral corruption by broadcasting school lessons or social programs involving girls. Women have been barred from universities and secondary schools for girls are yet to reopen. Anbarasan Etibrajan. With conflict continuing to rage between Russia and Ukraine and in the Middle East, many people feel like these are particularly turbulent times in the world, and it appears they are literally. Turbulence when flying seems to be getting worse, as the upper-level wind speeds seem to be getting faster. Last week, some aeroplanes flying from west to east completed their journeys incredibly fast, aided by an incredibly powerful jet stream. Measured in ground speed, some of these planes were going faster than sound. One study suggests warmer global temperatures mean faster jet stream wind speeds. Alastair Rosenshine used to fly Boeing 747s globally. Evan Davis asked him if wind speeds are getting faster. Well, generally, as the climate's warming up and uh, temperature is the driver of climate, then uh, it is possible the wind speeds are getting stronger. What is more to the point is that turbulence is occurring more often than before and is a little bit more severe than has been in the past. And and yeah, that I've... is an issue which most pilots are noticing. OK, because I was linking really the speed of the wind and the turbulence. They're not really quite the same thing, are they? 
Actually, they are, they're totally related. So the speed of the wind may be going up somewhat. I mean, some 30 years ago, I encountered a wind of 250 miles an hour over the Pacific, and that was probably the strongest wind that I was ever in. But wind speeds are typically between uh, 100 and 150 knots. It's about 120 and 170 miles an hour are quite common. Whether they're getting stronger or not, it's slightly debatable. It, data, the statistics are very difficult to come by. But as the wind speed increases to these sort of high levels, then you will get turbulence around that jet stream. And uh, that is what the uh, passengers notice when we're flying. And turbulence divides into three forms. It's light, medium and severe. Light turbulence is quite common. Moderate turbulence, most passengers will be grabbing their seats. Uh, It will certainly be grabbing the attention of the pilots. And severe turbulence is altogether another thing. It's difficult to control the aircraft under those circumstances. And that, that is fairly rare, but it is becoming somewhat more common. Now, we did have these incredibly fast flights, the Virgin flight, for example, from Washington to to London last week. What I guess is it must take an awful long time the other way. I mean, you might get it fast with going one way, but the, the strong wind must make the flight much slower the other way, right? You're absolutely right. But these winds are forecast and we know what the wind strengths are. There are, there are various different monitoring sites. And, and in addition to that, aircraft that are flying constantly are passing on the wind speeds and directions from their aircraft. So when you're flying to America, say from the UK, you don't want to fly in a jet stream. So you route the aircraft away from the jet streams. The jet streams ah, are only, okay. yeah, so that, that is, this is a trick. So you can minimize you the head <laughs> on your way there, whereas you maximize it on the way back. You, Very you literally seek to, to, to fly in the jet stream. Alastair Rosenshine speaking to Evan Davis. Now, to a mystery that has intrigued the internet. Who wrote a 1980s style song called Everyone knows that. Despite plenty of speculation online, the band or artist behind it remains unidentified, as Alfie Habersham explains. Everyone knows that. The name for the song that no one can find. It has eluded the internet for over 20 years, first uploaded by someone called Carl92 in 2001, and now it has its own Reddit forum, with 27,000 members furiously speculating each day. 1980s Italo disco, Japanese commercials in the 1960s, and singing Chinese toys all feature among the key theories. And it's not the only song frustrating the internet. That's called the most mysterious song on the internet, recorded by a German radio station called NDR in the 1980s. It has over 7 million views on YouTube and over 30,000 comments, but no one can pinpoint the singer, the year, or what it was supposed to be called. So what's driving this fascination? Neil McCormick is chief music critic at the British Telegraph newspaper. The only people interested in this are young people who have grown up in a streaming age where everything is digital and everything is registered. It's all coded, it's got metadata, and when they hear a piece of music in a restaurant, they can just hold up their phone and shazam it, as they say, and, and it tells them what it is. Except, you know, you can't shazam really obscure old music from the analogue era. Shazamming it would have been my suggestion, but if you know the song, or are even willing to admit you made it, 
you could help put an end to a long and painful search. Nobody has stepped forward after 20 years to acknowledge that that terrible sort of goth 80s song was theirs because it's probably, you know, it was probably a bunch of school kids who are bank managers and policemen now. Music critic Neil McCormick ending that report by Alfie Habersham. And that's all from us for now, but there'll be a new edition of the Global News Podcast later. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered in it, you can send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk. You can also find us on X at Global News Pod. This edition was mixed by Jonathan Greer and the producer was Emma Joseph. The editor is Karen Martin. I'm Alex Ritson. Until next time, goodbye. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers. It's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today.